Welcome to Valley Lights Church Online. Have you ever taken anything for granted? There's plenty of things that we enjoy every single day and sometimes forget just how valuable they are. Our physical health could be an example of this. Maybe you just love being healthy, but you don't realize it until you get sick or until you have some injury. You don't realize how much you love your elbows until you have an elbow injury. <laughs> or the freedoms that we enjoy in our country is another example of this. The freedoms that we enjoy were earned at a very costly price. They're, it's very valuable, but you know, it's easy to take for granted because we just, we have it every day. I actually think that's probably one of the reasons that we even have holidays like the 4th of July where we sing the national anthem. Those are, those are moments that help us to pause and remember and just express some gratitude for something so important but easy to take for granted. I'll tell you another one. Uh, I would say it's easy for me to take for granted my wife. And I know this is crazy. She's, she's the source of so much blessing and encouragement and help and support and love and so many good things. But, you know, I see her every day. She's there every day. And so it's, it's, it can be easy to do. You know, knowing that men often take their wives for granted, I think that's maybe why they came up with holidays like Mother's Day or anniversaries. Like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to pause and express my appreciation. Okay, that would be a good idea. So for me, I've got, you know, Mother's Day is usually in May. Then about two weeks later, my wife's birthday is at the end of May. And then about a week after that is our wedding anniversary. So there's about, there's about a 30-day stretch where I've got to be on my A-game. <laughs> so I've got reminders in the spring that, you know, start popping up in my calendar, start buying gifts or writing cards because I don't, I, don't I don't want to mess that up. I want to adequately express my appreciation. Health, freedoms, your spouse, these are all incredibly valuable things that we enjoy. And you, you just can't put a price on them. They're so costly. And yet, we sometimes lose sight of their value just in everyday life. Today, we're going to look at something that's even more valuable than all of those other things combined, and perhaps even easier to take for granted. We're beginning a brand new message series today called Text. For the next two weeks, we're going to be examining the living Word of God, the Bible. The Bible isn't just any ordinary book. It's not like other historical documents Actually, just check out what God's, how God describes the Bible in Hebrews 4.12. He says, it says, For the word of God is living, it's alive, and effective. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's very perceptive. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Scripture says that the truth in the Bible is alive. It's not just words on a page, but it's living. It's life-transforming. It's powerful. And it's active in every single way. And even though it's alive, it, it can be easy to neglect. Look at, here, here's my Bible here. This is the one that I've been using most often lately. Look at what Scripture says about our attitude towards the Bible. Uh, in Psalm 119, 16, it says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now, the word forget in that verse, it comes from the Hebrew word shakak, 
it's an old word, and it, it means to lay aside, to overlook, just to be unmindful of, or to, to not remember the significance and therefore just lose sight of it. Really, this word that, you know, I will not forget your word, it really just means to take for granted and to neglect. So what this verse is saying is, I will, I will delight, I will love your decrees, your word. I will not lay it aside. I will not forget your word. I will not take for granted your word. I won't neglect it. And, and yet, neglecting God's word is so easy to do. And it's not because we don't have access to the Bible. So for you watching and listening, do you own a Bible? I would guess that probably most of you do. Okay, how, how, many, how many of you own two or more Bibles? Now, that's also pretty common. And uh, I'm going to ask one more question. How, did you read your Bible every single day this week? And listen, if the answer is no, there's no judgment. That's pretty normal. That's, that's kind of the usual thing right now. What happened? If the Bible is as valuable as some say it is, what happens? Well, we, ha we have in the God's Word so readily accessible. Is that part of the reason that it's easy to neglect? Access to the Bible is not our problem. We don't need more Bibles, at least in our culture right now, in the U.S. especially. We, need more, we don't need more access. We need more engagement. I want to share something with you today that maybe will stoke a new flame of interest and desire for your Bible. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the value of things. The Bible has a fascinating story of how it came into being. The history and the timeline of, you know, I've got a physical paper and ink Bible in my hand right now. The story of how it got here is fascinating. In fact, it's dangerous and even bloody. A lot of death in the history of getting this Bible to me. And there's, and, and besides just stoking new interests, there's another benefit to looking at the Bible's origin story. If you've ever been skeptical about it, this maybe would help you add a building block to your level of confidence about its reliability. And actually, we're going to really zero in on that question next week about how reliable is it. But today we're going to breeze through the history of the Bible. We're going to cover a few millennia, <laughs> but we're going to go kind of fast. So let's talk about how God brought his word to us. And I'm talking about God's written down word in readable language. Not, uh, and if you're a theological student, if you've had a lot of studies, then you know that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, um, John chapter 1. But what I'm talking about is the stuff that we got on paper and we can read. How did, how did that get to us? Well, it started thousands and thousands of years ago. Somewhere between 1400 and 1500 B.C., before Christ, when God himself wrote the Ten Commandments on a stone. And uh, the first part of the Bible, there wasn't a lot to it. Ten, ten Commandments, <laughs> ten statements. Those were the very first written words of God in an ancient form of Hebrew. God gave these Ten Commandments to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, and that's when he began speaking his word to us. Then years later, the very first scriptures became known as the Pentateuch. These are the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the people of Israel for many years just had those first five books of the Bible because the rest of history hadn't played out yet. 
So for thousands and thousands of years, Scripture, you know, these five books were written, they were written on animal skins that were called scrolls. So a scribe might use the skin of a deer or a cow or a sheep, never a pig. They would never use a pig. That would have been unclean. It would have been totally inappropriate for God's word. But what's interesting is when the entire uh, Pentateuch was found on a scroll, it would be called a Torah. And the Torah scroll, if it was completely unraveled, it would be about 150 feet long. Huge. So the scroll was so long that it would often take an entire herd of sheep to, to write it all down. <laughs> and then by approximately 500 B.C., we got more books of the Bible. The 39 books that we know today as the Old Testament were completed, and they continued to be preserved on scrolls. Then by the end of the first century A.D., so now we're after Jesus' life. <clears throat> By the end of that first century after him, the New Testament was completed, and it was preserved in Greek on papyrus. Papyrus is like paper. Uh, it was uh, material made from crushed and flattened stalks of a reed-like plant. And then later, in year 367 A.D., the bishop of Alexandria, a guy by the name of Athanasius, he wrote his Easter letter, and in it, he listed all the books that you can read in the New Testament. Then a little later, in 393 A.D., the African Senate of Hippo approved all the books that you find listed in your New Testament today. Okay, so here we're about to get to a, a, a turning point. Um, by the year 500 A.D., the Bible had been translated into over 500 different languages. It got, it really developed and expanded. It was amazing. People all over were so thankful because they could read God's word in their own language. But then something very different happened. There was a very dark turn in the history of the development of the Bible spread. Something very unusual happened. <clears throat> in just the next century, uh, about in the next 100 years, in 600 AD, the Bible was only allowed in one language. Any guess on what that language was? It was Latin. And the reason for this is the Catholic Church in, of Rome at the time was the only recognized church in the land. And they issued a decree that no Bible other than theirs would be allowed. In fact, if anyone found a Bible in a language besides Latin, the person holding that Bible could be executed on the spot. I mean, me holding this right now, I'd be a criminal. That's crazy to think about with all the access we have. Well, why did that happen? Unfortunately, the Catholic Church became very, very corrupt. And the priests were the only ones educated in the Latin language. And so the common person could never, ever read God's word. They couldn't see what it said or learn for themselves what God said. And of course, this gives the priests ultimate power. Well, they could teach the parts of the Bible that they wanted to. And they could throw some stuff in that they wanted to. They could leave stuff out. And doing that sort of thing was pretty common. And so it was common for a person to go and pay. This is one of the things that the priest taught was to pay for indulgences, where a person would sin and they would do wrong. And the way to, to get their sin taken care of was to pay money to the priests. So if they, if they paid the priest, the priest would say, well, because you've paid, now you're forgiven. Well, guess who gets to pocket the money? There was another thing the Catholic Church taught was purgatory. And this is a word not found in the Bible. And what basically they would say, if your relative dies, they go to a place called purgatory where um, you, you basically have to make up for the sins that you did do in your life. 
you basically get purged. It's, it's a place of suffering that could last years or maybe thousands of years. And people believe that their relatives would go to purgatory. But amazingly, for a certain amount of money, you could buy grandma a ticket out of purgatory. So if she dies for just $9,900.95, you can pay grandma a ticket out. And so the priests would use this ignorance about forgiveness or purgatory or other things that they helped create. And they deceived people for a thousand years, from about 400 AD to 1400 AD. This long thousand-year period was known as the Dark Ages. It's a pretty good name for it. And amazingly, I sometimes get bent out of shape today thinking about the different English translations and, and uh, judging them or about which ones are translated properly or what's the best one. And I realized that's, that's a 21st century problem, okay? This, this was, this, you know, if, if you think there's problems with the church today, Man, ask yourself, why did God let that kind of corruption go on for a thousand years? That's a long time. How did the church ever break free from that? How did that long season of dark and horrible corruption? Well, we're going to do a flyover of how that happened. God's word had to get into the hands of the right people. And so during this thousand year period, something else was happening elsewhere. About 563 A.D., there was a guy named Columba. He was a guy that started a secret Bible society. It's like a Bible school where they could faithfully teach God's Word. And this group of people became the remnant on earth. So there was darkness and corruption, but God had a plan and he was working it out. So this remnant taught God's uh, God's Word century after century after century. And the students were known as the Coldies. And so this is a term that means certain stranger, meaning they were strangers of the world. They were focused on spiritual things. So for 700 years, the Coldies would disciple one another, generation after generation. They would study God's word, and it's out of this group that God raised up the right people to bring about a reformation, a big change that needed to happen in the church life. In the late 1300s, one of these guys was uh, named John Wycliffe, or John Wycliffe. And he was a man that God used to do tremendous things. He was the very first guy to translate the Bible into English. Woo! (laughs) English language. So when he did this, although I don't know if I could have read what he wrote, English was probably pretty different then. But when he did this, all the people who couldn't read Scripture before, now they can. They can know for themselves what God says, not dependent upon the priests, which you can imagine would be a pretty big threat to their money-making business. Some would say at this time in history, it would take about 10 months to translate one Bible. 10 months for one Bible. So he was faithfully spreading God's word, Wycliffe was. Uh, Unfortunately, he was called a heretic. They did not like this guy. And the Pope was so disgusted that 44 years after he died, the Pope ordered his bones to be dug up, destroyed, and then spread across the river. So there'd be no remnant of him whatsoever. But some say that Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation. He was the one that God used to start the ball rolling in the very necessary Reformation of the church. Wycliffe also had another disciple. His name was John Huss. Huss was equally passionate about getting God's word into people's hands so they could read it for themselves. He was also called a heretic, and Huss was burned at the stake. 
And what do you think they used to start the fire to burn him? They used Wycliffe's Bibles, the very Bibles that they printed. They, they spread Bibles all around him and lit the fires so that he burned. And Huss's final words became known as a prophecy that helped direct the future of the church. At the stake, before he's burned, he's about to die, very painful death. His last words were, in the next 100 years, God will raise up a man whose call for reform cannot be suppressed. It's amazingly powerful words. It may give you chills. And that's exactly what God did. In the year 1517, God raised up another man named Martin Luther, who is so fed up with all of the corruption of the church that he actually believed that God was calling him to help reform it. And it was on All Hallows' Eve. We call it Halloween today. It's celebrated a little differently now. All Hallows' Eve, Martin Luther took what became known as his 95 Theses. There, it was a document with 95 claims of heresy, just written out, targeted at the church, the Catholic Church. And he took them and he nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg Church. It was a German guy. And people describe him nailing those to the door as the knock that was heard around the world. God used those accusations of heresy to spark what became known as the Reformation of the Protestant Church. God also used Martin Luther to take the Bible and translate it into the German language, which is a huge thing. Many great scholars and philosophers have come out of Germany. He took the recent invention called the printing press, the invention of Gutenberg, and he published it to now get the Bible into the hands of the masses. Of course, Luther was called a heretic too. People wanted desperately to kill him. And so he spent much of his life on the run, but God used him to spark major changes in the church and get the word of God in the hands of the masses. About that time, there was another guy, an Oxford professor. His name was John Collette. He translated the Bible into English for his Oxford students. He also taught the Bible in the English language at St. Paul's Cathedral in London for, believe it or not, over 20,000 people. They would pack themselves into this cathedral simply to hear the Word of God in a language that they could understand. Not only were 20,000 people inside, but they would say there'd be just as many people on the outside desperate to hear what was being said. People were so hungry and desperate to hear, just hear the words of God for themselves. That beautiful historic cathedral still exists today, but Instead of over 20,000 people a weekend, they usually minister to about 20 people on a weekend, and most of them are tourists. A lot has changed. But in the year 1526, we finally get to another guy named William Tyndale. And this is the last guy we're going to look at in this history. Tyndale befriended Martin Luther, and God used William Tyndale to print the very first English Bible. That's the really good news. The bad news is that anyone who is caught with this illegal English Bible would be executed immediately. So we have a very low supply and a huge demand for people that wanted to read, who, who could read English and wanted to know God's language for themselves. They would do almost anything to get their, God's word into their hands. These people were very creative in figuring out how to get them around. So they would sometimes put Bibles in bales of cotton to smuggle them in, or they'd put them in bags of flour to get them passed around. And ironically, the biggest buyers of Tyndale's Bibles were the king's men. 
And it's not because they wanted to read it. It's because they were trying to confiscate as much as they could. They should try to get them out of the hands of the people. Well, Tyndale, he was a good businessman, and he would simply take the profits of all those Bibles, and he'd use the money to print even more Bibles to get the Word of God out. But because of what he was doing was considered illegal, he was on the run for 11 years of his life. Imagine waking up every single morning just with this thing, this Bible, in your mind, trying to get this out to people, but knowing that people were hunting you down, trying to kill you, just bloodthirsty with your, your death on their mind, just because you wanted to help people experience this Word of God. Day after day, morning after morning, year after year, for 11 years he was on the run because people wanted to execute him. In an old movie about him, Tyndale, um, he's, he said these famous words against the church authorities. And it's, you know, in old English, but he said, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. That was his scathing criticism against the religious leaders. He just wanted the common, the common boy to know more about God's word than the religious leaders. And so sadly, they did eventually catch up to him. They imprisoned him for about 500 days before they finally decided to burn him at the stake too. His last words before he was burned were a prayer to God, which people will remember forever. And he prayed, O Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And three years later, God answered that prayer in 1539. Not only did the king of England, his eyes were opened, he allowed the printing of the Bible in the English language, but he actually helped to fund it, setting God's word free. There's, of course, a you know, longer history of distribution and publication since that time to, to where we are today. But if you do a real quick recap, we had the Ten Commandments on stone, the Old Testament on animal skins, the New Testament on papyrus, they all got combined into paper, they were translated, suppressed, reproduced, smuggled, and then finally widely distributed. The Bible has a rich, complex origin story from the very beginning to where we have it right now. And we did a very brief flyover, but there are many, many people who died and gave up their lives fighting with everything within them to help God's living and active word be available to you and to me. And amazingly, it's easy to neglect it. It's easy to take the Bible for granted. How would you like to tell William Tyndale, who's burned at the stake, yeah, I just didn't really get around to reading the Bible that you printed. <laughs> Some of the most valuable things that we take for granted in life, sometimes we don't realize how valuable they are until they're taken away. I think there's been many periods in history or in, in different countries today, where access to the Bible was removed. I think it would be naive to suppose that it'll never happen again, or it'll never happen to us, or in our culture. Let's not wait until it's taken away, or until it's harder to access. Just like the 4th of July helps us to pause and remember our freedom, or an anniversary is intended to help us celebrate the incredible gift of our marriage. Gathering together on Sundays helps us to remember the value of our Bibles, to elevate the importance of it, to, to constantly keep it before us. Psalm 119.16 says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 
and won't neglect it or put it aside or take it for granted. And maybe you recognize you've done that. Maybe you want to make the Bible again or for the first time an active part of your daily routine. And you'd say, you know what, I, I really haven't been feeding on God's Word and I want to make it a daily part of my life. Here's some things you can do to delight in God's Word. One thing is to renew, maybe you made a commitment at some point, but today renew your commitment to daily reading and applying the Bible. Maybe at some point you developed a habit, but it's gotten sloppy. It's gotten neglected. Or maybe you read now, but doing the hard reflective work of applying at some point throughout the day doesn't really happen. And so it just becomes an exercise. So you might renew your commitment to read and apply. Or to delight in God's word, maybe you'll begin your daily Bible reading with gratitude and just praise God and thank Him that this, you know, this, this thing I hold in my hand, God has gotten it to me through the efforts of many people and really through the guidance of His Spirit over centuries. Praise God. Thank you so much for this. I treasure this. Another thing to delight in God's Word is to come on Sundays, whether it's in person or online, come expectant and eager. We ought to be thorough in our own personal study, but there's something special about focusing on God's Word as a group. God often speaks to many people at one time, but in different ways during this time as we look at this together. And so get ready for it. Get ready. Pray the night before that your heart would be engaged and ready to hear from Him. Another thing you might consider is to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus for the very first time, to have your eyes opened to the Bible's truth. Because you might say, you know, I really don't get that much out of reading the Bible. Scripture describes one of the problems that might be causing that. And, and the Bible says that the God of this age, who is Satan, tries to blind the minds of unbelievers. Your mind may have been blinded to the truth of God. Scripture also says that spiritual things are discerned and understood by spiritual people. Maybe you've never been spiritually born anew. Maybe you read God's Word and you tried it, but it doesn't really make sense. And listen, there's a lot of things in there that take some, some, some difficult understanding. Scripture says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that our sin nature separates us from a holy God. And God's so holy that He can't even look upon sin. So because of this, he, for God so loved the world, he so loved me and you that he sent his only son, Jesus. The word, of, the word of God made flesh, his son without sin, to die the perfect death on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you recognize that you're apart from God and that you want to be one with God and that you want to know him. You want to be filled with his spirit. You want to, if that's you, call in the name of Jesus. The words, God's word turned into bodily form. Jesus will save you. He'll forgive you. He'll make you new. And let us know if that's you. We'd love to help you walk through that incredible transformation. Today's message doesn't really touch on the how-tos of daily Bible reading. What are some of the common practices? Because the Bible is very big. It's complex. There's lots of different things to it. It's not a chronological novel. It's, it's very different than any kind of book that you could read because it's a collection. It's really a library. So we've got a handout that you could reference 
in some of the how-tos of daily Bible reading. So check that out. Let us also know if you want some additional guidance or if you have specific questions about the Bible. And come back next week and listen again because we're going to be really answering the question, is the Bible even reliable? You know, there's a lot of focus on this, but is it, is it even legit? Sometimes our doubt about the Bible causes distance. So come back next week. And the big goal of time in God's Word is to know Him better. It's really not about doing your homework. It's not about doing the good Christian thing. It's not about becoming an academic. It's about time with our Creator. Time in the Bible is time with God. We get the chance to hear from Him, to be guided by Him. There is great joy and peace that comes from a closer walk with Him. So let's, let's pray together. Thank you, God, so much for what thousands of leaders have done throughout history, the ways that they've sacrificed to bring your word to us. And God, I pray that everyone you've been convicting today will have a new passion to seek you daily. Their desire would grow and uh, even the, the level of discipline to carve out the time would grow and deepen. Not out of some ritualistic, religious, I got to do this to be a good Christian thing, but out of a deep hunger to know you, to know your truth and your glory and your power. And God, may we commit as your family of believers to seek you daily. We thank you for all the lives that are going to be changed because as we learn to know you and to follow you and do your will through your living word, you cause tremendous change. Uh, may you be glorified through that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. I hope it was helpful and we will see you next time.